We're going to be in Colossians 2 today, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. So if you want to go there, you can. It'll also be on the screen behind me. There's a new movie out called First Man. It's about Neil Armstrong and the quest to, to walk on the moon. So I haven't seen the movie yet. I've read a lot about that story over the years. It's a fascinating story. I mean, it was an audacious thing to think that we could get from the earth to the moon, land there and walk there. My college roommate still doesn't believe we actually went there. Maybe some of you are like that too. I'm sorry for you. Your life has no joy, right? Uh, But I think we made it. So the moon's 240,000 miles away. For reference, uh, a trip across the United States is about 3,000 miles. We'll we'll round up a little bit to make our math a little bit easier. 3,000 miles. So a trip to the moon, 240,000 miles away, is like 80 trips across the United States. It's an audacious thing. I think we could get that far, and we did. Now, in terms of, of space... 240,000 miles is really pretty, pretty small potatoes. Uh, for reference, the sun is 93 million miles away, 93 million. That's 31,000 trips across the United States, <clears throat> 31,000. But we've actually sent a spacecraft, a, a satellite, Voyager 1, which we launched in the late 70s. I say we like I was part of it. I'm really proud of my work on Voyager 1. Um, <laughs> NASA sent Voyager 1, which is now 13.2 billion miles away from us, leaving our solar system. For the reference, that's 4,400,000 trips across the United States. 4 million, or 4 billion, sorry, what did I say? 4,400,000 trips. Hard to keep all these numbers straight. If you get outside our solar system, we had to come up with a new term to describe the distances we're talking about. That, That term is light years. Okay, for the record, a light year is 5.8 trillion miles. If Voyager continues at the same speed it's traveling now, in 17,575 years, it will have traveled one light year. So, for reference, Jesus died 2,000 years ago. Right? So, 17,000 years from now, it will have traveled one light year. And the closest star to us, other than our sun, is 4.4 light years away, which doesn't sound that far until you do 4.4 times 5.8 trillion miles. I don't know how many trips across the U.S. that is. A lot. All right. You think about this, the scale and size of space, you begin to talk about numbers that don't even make sense to us. I mean, they're unfathomable numbers. You can't really wrap your mind around the expansiveness of the universe. And yet, as Isaiah says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? In other words, we can't wrap our minds around the scale of the universe, but for the God who made it all, it's all pretty small potatoes. Julian of Norwich was a a nun about 600 years ago. And she's praying one time and she has this vision. She sees this very small object about the size of a hazelnut, she says, which is like a marble. And she sees this, this hazelnut and she wonders, what might this be? And she hears this voice that says, this is all that has been made. This is all that has been made. Okay, it's a little mysterious, but it, It's as if for a moment, Julian is given the the perspective of God on his universe that he's created. 
God who looks down in that expansive universe that you and I can't even begin to wrap our minds around. God looks at it and he holds it all in his hand. Like this small little hazelnut right here. This is all that's been made right here. Now, that's difficult to wrap our minds around as well, but I hope that imagery, those numbers, that scale, the size and distances of space and that image of all of that in God's hand helps us to understand a word that I think will probably elude us even after this sermon. And that word is the fullness of God. And this is where we find that term in Colossians 2, starting in verse 9. We're going to go back and pick up in verse 6. Let's start in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, God, lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority in him. You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God, who raised him, Jesus, from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If you'll go back to the first verse nine, the first slide in that series of slides there and just leave that up for just a moment behind us, thanks. Over the next couple of weeks, as we get ready for Christmas, we're entering a season called Advent. It's, a, it's an idea we, we are awaiting the arrival of the King, Jesus, just as those who came before us, the children of God, awaited the Messiah okay, for so long. So we are waiting again. And I think Paul's making a point here about the King who we are waiting for that's really worth paying attention to. He's saying the reason that it matters that Jesus the Christ was born so long ago, the reason that it matters that he came to this earth before his death and resurrection, first, the primary, the first reason that it matters is because in Jesus, for the first time in human history, all of that fullness of the infinite and mighty and all-powerful God is wrapped up and bound up in one person, in Jesus the Christ. That's why it matters. All of that fullness that we cannot begin to imagine is bound up into one person. Now, that's difficult to understand, right? In fact, that's so hard to understand that the church has tried to understand it for a long time and hasn't really done well. The best we can do is metaphors. Martin Luther, you've heard of Martin Luther before, started the Protestant Reformation. He tried to make sense of this very idea. How is the fullness of God present in one person in Jesus Christ? And so Martin is hanging out at a, a blacksmith's shop one time. Remember, it's the 1500s, so there's blacksmiths all about. And he's watching this blacksmith take a piece of iron and put it in the fire. The iron is black in his hand. He puts it in the fire, and it comes out, and it's glowing orange and red. Right? He has this idea that this is much like Jesus Christ filled with the fullness of God. That Jesus is an iron. He's a man. But that the fullness of God is like that fire heating that iron. He stays a man. He's always still iron. 
but his nature is, is transformed, right? That he begins to, to radiate this power that is now filling him, so much so that if anything were to come close to that iron or touch it, it would be burned or singed or changed or at least heated, right? That's the metaphor he gives. And so I want you to think about the life of Jesus and what Paul is saying in these verses we just looked at. What, Paul, what Paul's saying, you really got to pay attention to. He's saying that the reason the death and resurrection of Jesus can make us alive the reason that death and resurrection forgives us our sins, cancels our debts, which condemn us, can defeat all powers and authorities in this world is because, firstly, the fullness of a power infinitely greater than anything we have ever seen in this world is present in that man, Jesus Christ. Now, that's the reason, as you read the Gospels, that he heals people without saying a word. It's the reason the demons flee from his presence. It's the reason that from the moment he's born, Herod wants him dead, Rome wants him dead, and nobody can keep him dead. Because the fullness of God is present in him. And even death, this great power that you and I are always fleeing from, even death is small potatoes compared to that infinite fullness in Jesus Christ. All right. So if you had access to that, you would want it. Right? I mean, if you could just taste just a, just a touch of the infinite fullness of God, you would want it. And that's maybe the most audacious claim of Christian faith. And much more audacious than a, a trip 240,000 miles to the moon, this claim that you have the fullness of God inside you. That's it. That's what he says here in Colossians 2.9, in Christ you have been brought to fullness. But we don't always feel full, do we? Uh, I, I could use your help. Uh, Lindsay and I are having a little parenting debate right now. And so we're gonna crowdsource what to do here. She actually gave me permission to do this. She thinks you're gonna side with her and I know she's wrong. Uh, every night we make our boys dinner and uh, usually there's a, a vegetable, a fruit, a meat of some kind, uh, if they're lucky, a roll. And um, we'll make this dinner, we chop it all up so they don't choke on anything. We spend a lot of time preparing it. We put it in front of them and we beg them to eat it. And inevitably they eat about like 13% of their dinner. Right. Does anybody else have this experience before? Okay. They say, we're so full, we're so full. And then about an hour later, we put them in bed. As we're turning off the lights and closing the doors, they say in unison, we're hungry, we're starving. Okay, so here's, here's the, uh, we're gonna crowdsource here and you're gonna have to vote, you're gonna have to raise your hand. There's only two choices. If you think that at that moment, I should go get them a string cheese, um, some carrots, uh, a brownie, a cookie, so that they can go to bed on full tummies, will you raise your hand? Okay. Did you hear me? I mean, okay. If you think that I'm getting played, that this is a stall tactic to delay bedtime, that I should be heartless and say, I guess you'll eat your dinner tomorrow and close the door over the sound of their screams and pleas of starvation, raise your hand. <laughs> Clearly y'all been talking to Lindsay. Preaching about compassion next week. 
compassion. We don't always feel full, do we? And here's how I know we don't always feel full. Paul actually addresses, as he sets up this idea of fullness, he, he kind of explains it, and he says this in verse 6. So, if you, <clears throat> a few verses before, he says this. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, Jesus, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So if we were fully experiencing the fullness of God, he says we would be overflowing. You can imagine that iron metaphor. If we, these pieces of iron, were put down into the fire and we were glowing hot and red, what would be radiating out from us was not heat, but thankfulness. We would be bursting at the seams if the fullness of the infinite God was present in us. We would be bursting with it. Every time we open our mouths, Thanksgiving would just be pouring out, not just on one Thursday a year. We would be thankful all the time. A few weeks ago, the Ironman race was held in Kona, Hawaii. It's one of the hardest races in the world, if not the hardest. It's a 2.4 mile swim, a 112 mile bike ride, and then a, a, a 26.2 mile run, a marathon. The guy that, went, that uh, won the race set a record, maybe the best Ironman that's ever been run. And he crossed the finish line and he held that finishing tape over his head and he just roared. And then his girlfriend in the crowd ran and she embraced him there at the finish line and he went down to one knee and he proposed to his girlfriend right there. And the crowd erupted again, right? And afterwards he said, this is the best day of my life. And I bet it was. I mean, it's hard to imagine anything that compares to that. Winning the Ironman, getting engaged, same day, finish line. I kind of wonder what he's thinking about now, though. Well, one, they're planning a wedding, looking ahead. And if I had to guess, I bet he's thinking about next year's Ironman, right? In fact, I, yesterday, I, I just wanted to check this before I just claimed this in front of you because I may be very wrong. And I went and checked in three days after he won the Ironman, he posted on Instagram. He said, my legs are getting a little itchy. I'm glad I'm signed up for the blank marathon this weekend. And that's the thing about competition, right? The satisfaction that we, that we feel feels really great for a moment, but then, it, but then it passes away. I want you to sit with that for a moment. That idea that satisfaction is fleeting. Because a lot of times we compare those two words, satisfaction and, and fullness, and we assume they mean the same thing, that they're synonyms, satisfaction and fullness. But not in the way that Paul's using this term fullness in Colossians 2. They mean different things. Not opposites, but different. I was running this idea by the guys in our prison Bible study last Wednesday. That's what I typically do. I try out my sermons in there. If they're not good, I don't, I don't bring them here. And... Um, it's a lot better for my marriage than trying them out on Lindsay, which didn't work too well for so long. And uh, so I tried out on them and I said, what is, what is satisfaction? And I love one of the guys answer. He said, satisfaction is to be cool for a minute, to be cool for a minute. And I like that. I think he's on to something. Satisfaction is to be cool for a time, for a period but then it, it kind of passes away and you're looking for the next source of satisfaction. Whereas, what Paul's talking about here, the fullness of this infinite, powerful God, if you had that, it would last forever. 
it wouldn't pass. Now, being satisfied isn't sinful. It's not sinful to go win a race. I think that's awesome. I've never won one, but I think it'd be nice. I don't think it's, it's sinful to, to feel satisfied after a good cup of coffee or to be satisfied after finishing a good book. Those things aren't sinful. It's not that satisfaction and fullness are opposites. But let me ask you this. If sin wanted to get hold of you and it knew sin, that it was competing with the fullness of God for your attention. What would sin try to offer you? Well, it would try to offer you something that looks a lot like fullness. And the best sin can offer is satisfaction. Okay, that's what Paul says in the verse we just skipped in the middle. Look at verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, so not full, and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and on the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. This makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, I think Paul understands how we operate. A few weeks ago, I, I preached about sexual sin. And a man came to me afterwards and began to share some of his life story. I'm not going to get into the details. But if I were if, to peel back the layers in his life of sorrow and trauma that he endured, that set him on the path that he traveled, and if I were to peel back those layers of sorrow and trauma that he caused to those people around him, I mean, this is ultimately what it boiled down to. The fullness of God always seemed just out of reach for him but he could get satisfaction. He could get satisfaction on his terms, and he always felt cool for a minute. And then he didn't feel so cool anymore, and he was faced with this choice to return to satisfaction or to continue to pursue the fullness of God he couldn't quite catch up to, and he always chose satisfaction. Okay, so you see that it's not to be satisfied is to sin. It's that often sin promises satisfaction, and for a minute it feels just about right. But then it wears off, and we are left wanting something much more, much more filling, right? I'm reminded of the, the Rolling Stones song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Well, you can get satisfaction. It's just what he really wants is the fullness of God that lasts, that's permanent. Julian of Norwich wondered why Christians, she, she's the one with the vision of the little hazelnut, and she wondered why Christians weren't the most happy, most thankful people in all the world. And looking at that little hazelnut, she thought it must be that we seek to have our rest, our value, our meaning, and things that are so small rather than things that are infinite and full, the things of God. She said, maybe it's because we are so focused on all that is small that we can't feel all that is full in us. I'm reminded of uh, Jesus off in the desert. He's got no food, he's been there 40 days. And Satan comes to Jesus and he says, look around at all these rocks. And in the desert, there's not a lot of food, but there's a lot of rocks. 
And he says, Jesus, you can turn these, these rocks into bread and you can be satisfied. And Jesus turns him down. I imagine he was pretty hungry, but he turns him down. And then Satan takes Jesus to, the, to a very high place and they look out on all the kingdoms of this world, all the nations of this world. He says, and the devil promises him, Jesus, you can be boss of all of this, all that you see. You can be boss of it all. And I imagine that may have been tempting to Jesus, maybe even a strategic move to be boss of everything on this earth, to really get the word out about the infinite, powerful God. But I wonder if the words of Isaiah were on his mind as he turned Satan down once again. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. Before him, God, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Okay, it's not that the God who stretched out the heavens all of its space and splendor. It's not that he doesn't care about the nations and kingdoms and people of this earth, but it's that to be king of every nation on this earth, by comparison to the God who holds this earth and every other world in his hand, to be king of something on there is to be king of nothing, really. Yeah. Uh, I was at a conference of uh, Church of Christ preachers not long ago. It was a rowdy time. And uh, we were spending time with uh, this, this one Church of Christ preacher who's just a hero of mine, just a legend among Churches of Christ preachers, preached at all the conferences, written great books, just a wonderful, powerful speaker, maybe the best in Churches of Christ ever, maybe. And, and me and some other preacher boys were sitting around him, you know, kind of talking about what he's meant to us and what he's meant to our movement, how thankful we are for him. And he stopped us and he said, he said, boys, I'll never forget this. Boys, it took me a long time to figure out to be the best preacher in churches of Christ amounts to nothing. Which was discouraging. <laughs> but he's right. You know, to be king of everything in your little world, even to be king of the whole world, is to be a, a speck of dust on the hazelnut that God holds in his hand. It's really not much. And Jesus, who had been at the right hand of God and would return to the right hand of God, who knew full well the fullness of God and felt the fullness of God inside him on this earth, knew that to be a speck of dust on that hazelnut did not compare. Just did not compare. All right. <clears throat> so if you don't feel full and you want to feel full, you're going to look to this passage to tell you how to do it. And in all these verses, there's only one prescription. There's only one thing Paul says to do. That's in verse seven. He says, continue to live or walk literally your lives in him, in Jesus. And then in the, the, the verses following that, sorry, that's in verse six, starting in verse seven, he explains what that means in a series of three Phrases. He says, you need to be rooted and built up in Christ. That's language Paul uses elsewhere for, the, for church, for being a part of the body of Christ. So he's saying you need to be part of the body of Christ to feel the fullness of God. He says you need to be strengthened in faith. That's spiritual language. You need to be working at your spiritual life. And he says you need to be overflowing with thankfulness. So he's talking about your posture towards the world due to God's great gifts in your life. But then he makes this, this really important point, and it's worth pointing out to ourselves as we finish. The fullness of God in Christ and in you does not depend on what you do. You cannot earn 
the fullness of God. You cannot eat so much of the fullness of God that you finally feel full. It's not about you. It's not about you. If you are a baptized believer, that's what Paul says in these verses, then you are already wrapped up in the fullness of God. That's verse 10. What that means is that your sinful nature has already been cut away from you in verse 11. You have already been put to death and been brought back to life in those waters of baptism, verse 12. God has already forgiven all of your sins in verse 13. He has canceled your debts in verse 14. He has nailed them to the cross, triumphing over every power that is arrayed against you in verse 15. It is one of the most powerful verses in scripture about what God in Christ Jesus has done for you. And this is the takeaway. You are already filled with the fullness of God. You've already got it. Whereas John says in chapter one, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Okay, that's worthy of thanksgiving. There is much in life to be thankful for, but all of it pales compared to the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace of the fullness of God that you and I enjoy every day. And if you knew what that grace has done for you, you would never question the fullness of God and you would be overflowing with thanksgiving. And so that's my prayer for you as we end, as Paul's prayer is for his church. I pray that you may have the, the power to comprehend what is already a reality with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Amen. If you'd like to feel that fullness of God, if you'd like prayers this morning, if you'd like to give your life to Jesus in baptism, I'd be honored to join you in that. I'll be down front. We also have shepherds in the back. Will you stand as we sing? This is my desire to honor